like a scarecrow in a melon patch. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. They can do no harm. Nor can they do any good. Well, cool. I never get tired of seeing that animation. Um, we're going to see it one more time. If you, uh, know, if you know Brian P., who made that, tell him how awesome he is after the service. That is our theme verse for this series, Jeremiah 10.5. And it's the prophet speaking to the people, speaking on God's behalf to the people, about the idols of the pagan cultures around them and saying they are nothing but a scarecrow in a melon patch. They cannot speak, they cannot walk, they can't do you any harm, nor could they do any good. And while we don't exactly live in the same type of pagan culture that Israel did at the time of the prophet Jeremiah, not quite at least, um, I think it's very true that we face our own little idols. Sometimes it's ourself. And so one of the idols that we want to take down this week is a political idol. So to get started, I have a political religious story for you from my past. Uh, in 1988, I was 11 years old, and a a candidate for president visited our church. Now, I went to probably the largest evangelical church in southern Maine, so it um, made perfect sense that this particular candidate, when passing through that part of the country, would stop uh, at our church. And I walked in the door that night, and I'd never seen anything like it in that place. Every space in the sanctuary was packed full. This sanctuary is probably four times as big as this one, at least, and it was packed to the gills. And all along the back wall were TV news teams and cameras. The local media had showed, shown up to cover this important political visitor. And the doors were thrown open, and he walked in, and the whole room just erupted in a standing ovation. which really confused me because I had never heard anybody clap in that church for any reason ever in my 11 years of life. We were not a clapping church. We didn't even clap. This will tell you how stoic we were. We didn't even clap when the soloist finished her version of Love in Any Language, which she sang along with a pre-recorded tape and did sign language to as she sang it. We didn't even clap for that. So when we clapped for this political candidate, I was like, what is going on here? And I turned to my dad and said, Dad, why are we clapping? And he said to me, well, this man is a Christian. And all the people of the church think it's very important that a Christian be elected president. And so we want to support him. So I filed that little tidbit away 
Maybe it informed my political thinking for some of the years to follow, at least, if not all of them, I hope. I want you to file that little story away, too, because you may put that up against some of the other things I'll say tonight. But can anybody remember all the way back to 1988 and guess who that political presidential candidate was? I don't hear anybody saying it. No. Pat Robertson. Yeah, we dodged a bullet with that one, didn't we? Brother in Christ. Um, so let's fast forward to the present day. 20 years later, the year 2008, we have two major party candidates we can choose to vote for or not on Tuesday. And I'd like to ask you, you don't say this out loud because I don't want you to get in trouble with your neighbors, which one, if he were to enter our sanctuary tonight, would we want to give a standing ovation? Both? Neither? Well, uh, to help us make an informed decision, I'm going to do a little exercise here, and I need to ask for help from our artisan scarecrow, so I'm going to come over and get him, and I need a volunteer from the audience to help me hold him up tonight. This volunteer should either be a McCain supporter or an Obama supporter or an undecided. So if you're in one of those groups, you can, you can be my volunteer. So I just need you to hold up the scarecrow here for me. Oh, oh, yeah. You guys aren't even old enough to vote. Why am I going to let you hold the scarecrow? No, no, I'm sorry, Ken. You're... Oh, Stacy's here. Sorry, kids. Okay. So <clears throat> I, I can't bring them here in person tonight, but I do have both of our candidates uh, here with us. And I want to tackle this issue by issue, and, and uh, you tell me what you think. So let's start out with the environment, okay? John McCain's drill, baby drill policies will destroy God's natural creation. Unfortunately, Barack Obama thinks human beings are no more important than spotted owls and Alaskan caribou. How about something a little more serious? Barack Obama wants to allow doctors to continue killing unborn babies. Unfortunately, John McCain wants to allow soldiers to continue killing the babies that have already been born. How about economic policy, economic philosophy? Barack Obama is a socialist dog. John McCain is a capitalist pig. What about the poor? Well, John McCain hates poor people. As you probably know, he wants to feed the poor people to the rich people. <laughs> Meanwhile, Barack Obama wants to give away your hard-earned money to lazy people. And one more issue, health care. John McCain doesn't care about the millions of uninsured children in our country. But did I mention that Barack Obama is a socialist? Well, we've had a lot of fun here tonight. <laughs> Thank you, Stacy. Round of applause for our scarecrow holder, Stacy. I'm just going to set him down there for a minute. 
Does anybody recognize, maybe if you were on the debate team in high school, what is the very underhanded debate tactic I just employed there? <laughs> no, no show of hands. We're a rowdy bunch. What was it? Well, yeah, maybe a little bit. Straw man, yeah, see, there's a straw man. <laughs> yeah, that's how that works. A straw man attack is what? It's when I'm debating with you, and I set up your position, and I don't really represent it accurately. I embellish it here or there, so it's very easy to refute it. I set up a straw man that I can knock down without hardly trying. And the unfortunate thing about our political discourse in America, and I don't think we necessarily have a monopoly on this, is that we do almost nothing but attack straw men when we talk about politics. Because obviously John McCain does not want to feed poor people to rich people. Um, and Barack Obama does not have a bloodthirsty desire to kill unborn children. To represent their views that way, without any nuance, is ridiculous. And that was sort of an extreme example of the straw man attack. But I bet if you watched the evening news, or any political show, or read any political blog, you could identify a straw man within about one or two sentences. We just don't speak very honestly about these things. The absurdity of those examples aside, I think it's probably still fair to say that we have a challenge ahead of us in determining which candidate we want to vote for as people of faith because we all have different ways of interpreting that faith and applying our beliefs to our political persuasion. So, since we can't use the straw man and get any good results, I'd like to look at Jesus uh, and a few things that he said and uh, one thing that the Apostle Paul said about him and see if that can help us understand our political situation any better. So let's start out in Matthew 22, 16 through 22. This will be on the screen, or you can follow along with the Bibles under your chair. Matthew 16, uh, 22, 16. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And I have a picture here of one. He said, Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? So this is the coin or one similar to what they may have handed him. And he said, whose head is this and whose title? They answered, the emperor's. Then he said to them, okay, give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. If there is one stone-cold lock truth in Scripture, it's that if you go up to Jesus and try to trap him in your words you're going to get amazed and go away. <laughs> it 
That seems to be the result over and over again when people try to trap Jesus uh, with what he's believing and teaching. But what does this response that Jesus gives teach us about his view on taxes? Well, personally, I'd like to believe that it means that Jesus is in support of the flat tax. Uh, But (laughs) honestly, I may be reading into that text just a little bit. No, unfortunately, I don't think it really tells us much of anything about what Jesus believes about taxation and whether his followers should participate in it or avoid it or dodge it or not. You could make a, I think you could make a decent argument for or against that. I think what Jesus is doing is saying that his priorities are radically different than they might have wanted them to be. He's hinting that the question they asked was kind of the wrong one, if you want to understand, if you want to get your head around this Jesus thing. Taxation is not really the single issue you need to focus on if you want to be a follower of Jesus. So, tuck that away for just a minute. I want to move on to another statement that Jesus makes, probably the most important political statement that that he makes in in the recorded Gospels. And this is from John chapter 18. And it happens in a trial. He's been brought before Pilate because he's been accused of being a political insurgent, among other things. But he's brought before Pilate, and Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? That's what he's been accused of calling himself. And this is his answer. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. And here he's not speaking about the Jewish population as a whole, but the Jewish authorities that were kind of out to get him. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. As he did time and time again in his teaching, Jesus turned the attention of everyone listening to the kingdom of God. See, Jesus is not remotely interested, doesn't appear to be, in political power. Even though that is what he's been accused of, being a political insurgent, and even though many of his followers desperately wanted him to be a political powerhouse, He had no interest in it. He said, my kingdom is not from this world. It's somewhere else. Do you see him kind of laying the groundwork about the question of where our allegiance lies with political powers or elsewhere? Keep filing that away. And I want to read another biblical passage. This is from the letter to the Colossians written by the Apostle Paul. It's from chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. And this is probably my favorite passage of Scripture, uh, at least in the New Testament. And here's what Paul has to say about Jesus. Hear these words. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, 
all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Wait, pastor, I hear you saying. This was supposed to be a political sermon. We were having all kinds of fun talking about politics, and then you had to get us off the rails and start talking about this complex theological view of who Jesus is, Christology. Well, yes, this passage is a really terrific and dense theological treatise about Jesus. It is that, but I think it's also a subversive political commentary. It's just riddled with political allusion and language and references. We just don't necessarily recognize it on our first reading because we don't really know much about the language, the political culture of first century Roman Empire. So let me unpack this for you a little bit. Oh, if you're playing the drinking game listening to this on the podcast, the pastor just said unpack. <laughs> so that's two drinks, I think. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, oh, yes, the, the political language in Colossians 1. In the first century Roman Empire, Caesar, the emperor, was understood to be the son of God. So for Paul to say that Jesus is the son of God is a dramatic theological statement, obviously. But it's also a powerful political statement as well. Caesar was the head of all the institutions of Rome. So for Paul to say of Jesus that in him all things hold together, that he has first place in everything, yes, that is a powerful theological statement, but it's also a subversive, significant political statement. To say that everything visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers or emperors, you might add there, reading between the lines, say that Jesus is over all those things. Again, powerful theological statement. We could, we could spend a whole sermon series talking about these five verses, just the theology of it. You might leave the church by the end of it, but we could. But it's also a powerful, significant political statement. In fact, um, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat, who wrote a book called Colossians Remixed, it's a whole book about this book of Colossians, they suggest that these five verses, taken in the context of the first century Roman Empire, would have been nothing short of treasonous, capital offense against the state. So what could this possibly have to say for our political culture our political climate, 
and the decision that we all have to make on Tuesday about whom to vote for. Are you getting the sense that I'm never going to tell you which one to vote for? <laughs> I hope you are. Uh, and I hope that if I did, you would ignore me because that would be a bad idea. But let me say this, and I hope you won't ignore this. As much as Paul suggesting that Jesus in the first century Roman Empire should be considered to be above the emperor, to be above Caesar, to be the true powerhouse that we pledge allegiance to, that they pledge allegiance to, as much as that is true for the original readers of that letter, how much more would it be true for us today that we should consider Jesus to be our primary authority in all things political or otherwise? That Jesus should be considered above our senators and congressmen and congresswomen, and yes, above our president, no matter which one of them is elected on Tuesday. So I wasn't able to come to a decision for you or help you come to a decision with my Obama and McCain masks about which one the true Christians in the room will vote for on Tuesday. But I think what we can say unequivocally is that we must not make idols of these candidates. What would that look like anyway to make an idol of a presidential candidate? Well, I want to read you a short passage from one of my favorite contemporary theologians and writers. His name is Greg Boyd, and he writes a lot about a, a wide variety of topics, but one of them recently has been politics. And this is what he says. You can follow along on the screen if you want. We do need hope, and we do need a Savior. Yet when this natural longing for hope and salvation is directed toward anything or anyone other than God, the Bible calls it what? Idolatry. Our hope is not to be placed in the eloquence of Obama or the heroism of McCain, but in the loving self-sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary. We're never to put country first, but are rather to seek first the kingdom of God. So here's the thing. We don't worship our president. We worship the Son of God. And so we have to be very careful that our politics and our politicians do not become idols. Because what did we say about idols? What has this whole series been saying about idols? They don't speak. That's right, Grant. They lose their hat when you put them on the ground. They must be carried because they cannot walk. So I'm going to go ahead and... Uh, See if I can tuck Senators Obama and McCain back in these pockets. Oops. I'm going to carry this over and put him back where he belongs. And let me offer some words of comfort in advance for those of you whose candidate loses the election on Tuesday. Because if we've made idols of these candidates... What does Jeremiah say about them? Do not fear them, for they can do you no harm. 
So take heart. If your candidate loses, the one who wins can do you no harm when it comes to the kingdom of God. But that's not all Jeremiah said. So take heed if your candidate does win on Tuesday, because if you've made an idol of him, Jeremiah tells us that he also can't do you any good. A minute ago, I suggested that Jesus' teachings on taxation and on his kingdom began to push the question of where our allegiance lies, where his allegiance was and where ours ought to be. So let's talk about allegiance for a minute. Does anybody remember the Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag? Do they still do that in schools nowadays? I remember um, all through school, right up into high school, we would say the Pledge of Allegiance every morning. We would, in the morning, the first thing that would happen is the vice principal would come over the intercom and he would say, please rise for the morning Pledge of Allegiance. And he would say, I pledge allegiance. And then in every classroom of that school, and in every school around the country, we would finish off to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I had not said those words in 15 or 20 years until I was rehearsing this sermon last night, and I have to tell you, those words came back to me like that. That had been drilled into my head from the time I was five until the time I was 17. And so it might take a little work to get it out of there, but I want to propose to you that no, as people of faith, followers of Jesus Christ, our allegiance is not to the flag of the United States of America. I hope you won't find me unpatriotic by saying that. Our allegiance is to, is to no nation or state. Our allegiance is not to any political party. And let me say a word about that. Because as soon as they convince you that one political party or the other is the one you must ascribe to if you are a true believer in Christ, they've got you exactly where they want you, which is right behind them, following them like a puppy dog, no matter where they go, be it all the way to the gates of hell. Because to, con to try to convince you that being a Democrat or a Republican is the same thing as being a true follower of Jesus is nothing more than, hello, I'm a Mac and I'm a PC, repackaged for political purposes. It's nothing but marketing. And what is one of the first principles of marketing? segmentation. If you have an entire population of people and you want to market a product, what do you have to do? You have to divide those people into a smaller group so that you can target your advertising to one group in one way and target that same product to another group a different way. And the more you subdivide the population, the easier it is to sell them your goods and services. And I'm here to propose to you tonight that this business of you must be a Democrat to be a Christian or you must be a Republican to be a Christian is baloney and it's nothing more than marketing. 
Our allegiance is not to a flag. It's not to a nation or state. It's not to a political party. And how about this one? It's not to any church or any denomination. And I'm saying that speaking to you as a pastor of this church, which is part of a denomination. And I love this church and I love our denomination. But that's not where our allegiance lies. Our allegiance is to Christ the King, period. Him alone. So, am I telling you not to vote on Tuesday? No. I honestly hope you don't hear that from me. Because voting is one, hear me, one of the ways in which we can work to bring about the reality of the kingdom of God here on earth today as best we can until Jesus comes and finishes the whole thing off for us. But I do believe that we're called to make that happen as best we can every day. And voting your conscience is one way that you can do that. But we must never believe that voting is good enough. We must never misplace our faith by placing it in politicians instead of in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read you one more passage from that same author, Greg Boyd. This time he's talking specifically about voting, and I love this one. Here's what he says. How we need to be freed from the illusion that we're doing anything kingdom by voting a certain way every couple of years. How we need to wake up to the truth that we vote for or against the kingdom every day of our life. We vote by how we spend our money and time. We vote by where we live, who we hang out with, the kind of car we drive, and the kind of clothes we wear. In the kingdom, we vote with our lives, not in a booth expressing our opinion about what Caesar should do. See, Jesus' ministry was what we call incarnational, meaning that being God, he became fully human and lived in a particular place and time and culture. Jesus, if he were to come to earth, had to pick a place and a time and a culture. And it just so happened that the way it worked out was it was first century Palestine and he was a Jewish man. And his ministry was to the people around him, the culture that he lived in. And if we're to be followers of Jesus, our ministry must also be incarnational. By that I mean we have to look around and say, it is 2008, we live in Rochester, New York, we live in the city or we live in our rural area or our suburbs. Wherever we are, wherever God has placed us, we have to interact with that culture and do our best to serve him incarnationally. Our ministry has to have context. There's no other way to do it. So yes, vote on Tuesday. Please do. Vote your conscience, as they say. But don't be deceived. We do not worship a president. We worship a king. And a king who is like no other. Because this king emptied himself 
became one of us, offered up his riches and became poor so that we might be rich in him. And while he was serving, he gathered his followers around a table and made a meal for them. Simple bread and wine. And on the night that one of those people in the room with him would betray him, he foretold his death and said, as he passed the bread, this is my body, broken for you. Eat it. And whenever you do, remember me. And he took the wine and passed it around and said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this, and every time you do, remember me. And so every time we come together to worship Jesus the King, we reenact that last supper that he had with his disciples. And so I'm going to open this table now for any of you who may be followers of him, any of you who want to join in that reenactment of his supper and his death and the power that comes with his resurrection. This table will be open for the rest of our time together. And my prayer is that as you take that bread and dip it in the wine, we also have a non-alcoholic juice, if that would be more appropriate for you, that you would take that as an act of remembrance and that it would be food for your souls, strengthening you to go into the world and be the hands and feet of Christ, his body. And maybe it will help you decide whom to vote for as well. <laughs> well. Let's pray. Jesus, you are our King, and we are so grateful and we give you praise for the fact that you emptied yourself and became like one of us. And we pray that as we seek to make a political decision, a very practical matter, your Spirit would speak to us but that no matter who wins this election or any other one in our lifetimes, we would remember that we don't worship a president or any politician, that we worship you, our Lord. Be with us as we join in the reenactment of your supper. Remind us of your death and resurrection and strengthen us to do your work. We pray in your name. Amen.